If you've been with us over the last several weeks, this section of scripture, really beginning about halfway through Mark chapter 7, and then continuing through Mark chapter 8, Jesus has been dealing with his disciples and how his disciples view people. Because the way they viewed people was skewed. They didn't really like people that weren't like them. The disciples were kind of the ultimate clique, and and they were part of a much larger clique, that being the Jews. And they hated the Gentiles. Now, understand, that wasn't just one group of people. It wasn't like, okay, well, well, the Jews hated the people to the right of them or the people to the left of them. No, the Jews hated everyone that wasn't a Jew. And Jesus is going to great lengths to change the way his disciples view people. Now his frustration has boiled over. Where we left things off last Sunday, Jesus has fired off a series of nine challenging and directed questions to the disciples. Boom, one after another. Without even a pause to give them room to answer or to reply, Jesus is just grilling them. I mean, this frustration, he spent so much time trying to change their perspective. They're not getting it. Jesus is frustrated. That frustration boils over. And Jesus kind of retorts at the end. They they never reply. They never respond. Jesus kind of like, his frustration boils to a crescendo. And he just kind of declares, how is it, in verse 21, how is it that you do not understand? Now, to get God... To throw up his hands, to scratch his head, and to say, how is it for God to say, I don't get you? Like, everything we've been trying here. Like, are you that stupid? Oh, they kind of were. And yet Jesus, his frustration. Now, I love the patience of Jesus. Because if I were in Jesus' shoes, after all of this time and all of these lessons and then Jesus is, is teaching about this and he's teaching about that and they get in the boat and Jesus be, you know, warns them against the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven against Herod and they're looking at one another and they're like, well, good grief, is it because we didn't bring any bread? And Jesus is just pulling his hair out and he's, he's frustrated. At this point, I'm like, I'm jumping off the ship, swimming to shore and just like finding new disciples at this point. Like, Really, after two and a half years of ministry, you've been tagging along, you've been hearing me speak, you've been watching these miracles. After all of this stuff's been going on, you're still not getting it. If I were Jesus, I would have been done with them. But I'm glad I'm not Jesus. And I'm glad Jesus doesn't give up on us. Because as frustrated as he was with the disciples... How is it that you don't understand? He was patient. Parents, it's a good thing that you're patient. Because I'm sure that you can sympathize a little here with Jesus, can't you? You've been teaching your kids. You've been instructing them over and over and over. You've been stressing the importance of school. The report card gets home and you're pulling your hair. Like, how is it that you don't understand? And you might have that moment where you're like, okay, yeah, they're 14 years old, but adoption is still an issue. I maybe just need to get some new kids. But you don't, because you love your kids. And so you'll be patient with your kids. And what will you do? A good parent 
will change the strategy. They will address their approach. They will try something new. Okay, the way I've been going about this is not getting through, so we're going to go back to the drawing board. And this is where we're at in this section of Scripture. Jesus declares, how is it that you do not understand? We would have given up, but Jesus doesn't. They're going to dock, and Jesus is setting up a miracle in advance that's going to directly deal with these disciples. We're told in verse 22 of Mark chapter 8, Then Jesus came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged Jesus to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. Well, the man looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. So Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes again and made him look up a second time. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Now our scene of activity is Jesus arrives at Bethsaida. He's left the region of Dalmutha, which was part of uh, this compilation of ten cities, the Decapolis. Dalmutha, he's on the Sea of Galilee. He gets into a boat. He's making his way to Bethsaida. Bethsaida was located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, to give you some geography. There's a little debate in regards to exactly where Bethsaida was. They haven't been able to uncover ruins to say definitively, but because of where Jesus will go from Bethsaida, one can conclude it is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's at least where the archaeologists continue to look, continue to excavate. So Jesus gets to Bethsaida. He arrives, and we're told that they bring out this blind man. So he's brought a blind man, and then we're told that Jesus leads the man out of town before doing anything, which is interesting. Because this is now the second time that we see Jesus kind of taking a similar approach. When Jesus was brought, when he first arrived to the region of the Decapolis, he was brought, remember, the deaf man with the speech impediment? And there was a crowd, there was a multitude. Jesus has brought this man, and what does Jesus do? Jesus takes the man into a private setting before he does anything. We see this now here again, that Jesus has brought this blind man. Instead of performing the miracle and the presence of everyone there, Jesus instead takes the guy aside before he ministers, which is and should be noted kind of an interesting departure from the normal way that Jesus healed. Early on in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus had no problems healing in a public setting, and yet now we find Jesus healing primarily in a private setting. And, and so we kind of have to ask, why the change in approach? You, you should realize that Jesus initially performed public miracles for two reasons. It wasn't to get his name out there. It wasn't to get the tabloids talking. It wasn't uh, to, to demonstrate or to wow uh, with his power, his supernatural element. Jesus healed publicly at the beginning of his ministry, mainly for two reasons. First, he healed because he had compassion on the person that needed healing. And at, this, at, at the early points, I mean, the whole town's coming out. I mean, this, it would be impossible to take everyone into a private setting. 
It wasn't as though Jesus could have erected, you know, a healing closet. And it's like one after another, they come coming in. So out of necessity, Jesus kind of had to heal publicly because the whole crowd was coming to be healed. But the other reason that early in Jesus's ministry, it was important for him to heal publicly is that Jesus, through his through his miracles, through his miraculous signs and wonders, through these miracles, these works that Jesus did in an outward public manner, what Jesus was doing is Jesus was validating that his word had power. Jesus performed public healing miracles to validate his public teaching ministry. A great example of this was early on where Jesus was in the house, remember? These men bring this paralytic. They lower him down into the house. There's a crowd. The Pharisees are there. He's now got this paralytic man laying in front of him. Jesus deals with the need of this man. He says to the man, may your sins be forgiven. And then he perceives that what's happening, people are thinking he's copping out. But then Jesus makes an interesting statement. He says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sin." He turns to the man and he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. The man gets up, he walks out. So Jesus performed a miracle to validate that his word, his word had power. Now at this point, there's a change in Jesus's ministry. He still is performing miracles, why? Because he's got compassion for those in need. But Jesus is no longer doing it in a public setting, as we're seeing, because there's no need now to validate his power or the power of his word. I mean, everyone at this point, because of the resume that Jesus already had, they knew that Jesus could perform miracles. There wasn't much debate anymore that Jesus's word had power. And as we mentioned last Sunday, Jesus never performed miracles to convert people. He never performed miracles to deal with unbelief. And because most people's minds were made up concerning Jesus and who he was, there was no longer a solid reason to perform these miracles in public. Not to mention that we just saw that Jesus dealt with the Pharisees who were seeking from Jesus what? A sign that were coming because they wanted to see the miraculous. And I think Jesus is thinking, you know, at this point, it would be, I want to deal with the need, but I'm going to do it now in a private setting versus a public setting. Well, we're told that Jesus does something interesting here. Something that if you saw me do, it would raise some eyebrows. Jesus spits on the man's eyes. So Jesus takes this blind man, and and you got to kind of get yourself in the scene. Because if you're the disciples, or even the guy's buddies who brought their blind friend, or the blind, blind guy himself, he doesn't see anything. He's kind of standing there, he's not sure what happens, and all of a sudden, like, Jesus spits, it hits him in the face, and he's like, the dude just spat on my face? Like, really, this is what's going on? Like, not a traditional uh, church-style ministry. Like, hey, listen, Larry's available during our second set of worship. He'll anoint you with oil if you need healing, or he'll spit on your eyes. Like, either way. Like, not a lot of people are going to be coming to Larry for prayer. Now, why would Jesus spit on the man's eyes? Now, note a common misconception. Jesus didn't spit in the man's eyes. He spat on the man's eyes. 
and I think that's significant. First, we've mentioned this before, but in the ancient world, saliva was viewed as medicinal. And so, just like with the healing of the deaf man with the speech impediment, how Jesus spits, puts his fingers in the man's ears, touches his tongue, that Jesus is doing these things, not because it's the method behind the miracle, but because he's just getting the man's attention. It's kind of letting him know, I'm about to perform a miracle. Spitting on the man's eyes, letting him know, I'm about to do something medical with your eyes. So that's one theory. I, th I think there's a better more practical explanation. Most of the time, especially in the, in the ancient world, when you were blind, it was common for you to develop gunk and mucus around the eyes, especially the eyelids, to the point that your eyelids were often crusted over. You couldn't see through. It was hard to get light at all. And it could be that Jesus spat on the man's eyes because he wanted to clear away the mucus and the gunk to be able to open the eyelids. And I think that's a practical, feasible explanation for why Jesus would spit on the man's eyes. But then Jesus, we're told, puts his hands on him, and we're told he asks him if he sees anything. Well, we're told that the man looks up, and he says, he replies, I see men like trees walking. Well, Jesus then makes the man look up a second time. He lays his hands on the man, and we're told at this juncture, the man was restored and saw everyone clearly. Jesus sends him home, tells him to keep everything on the DL. Now, my first observation here, and we're going to unpack what's taking place, but my first observation is that you should note that the healing of the blind is the most repeated miracle of Jesus' earthly ministry, at least as it's recorded through the Gospels. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus performed multiple miracles, so many miracles that aren't even recorded in the pages of Scripture, because to do so, there wouldn't be enough volumes to record everything that Jesus did. So we understand that Jesus did a lot more than what's just recorded here in the Gospels. Every day, Jesus is ministering to people. But according to the gospel record, the most repeated miracle that Jesus performed was the healing of the blind. And there are two reasons that this is the case. First, people are terrified of blindness because we're often terrified of darkness. I mean, if we were to take a poll in the room as to, okay, we're going to remove something. Like, we're going to take something from you. An arm, a leg, your ears, your ability to smell, your ability to talk, or your ability to see. My guess is that none of us are like, yeah, I have no interest in seeing anything. I mean, we like being able to see, and we don't like darkness. So I think this is a repeated miracle that Jesus performs because blindness... Man, there's something terrifying about the darkness that comes with it, not being able to see, all of the problems that end up arising because I can't see. But the other reason is that blindness is often symbolic in Scripture of a life of sin in the world without the light of revelation. Now, we could do an entire Bible study on this particular point, but what we're going to do is we're going to leave kind of the, the further explanation of this particular rabbit trail to one of our B-sides. But this leads us to a second observation. 
Okay, the healing of the blind is the most repeated miracle of Jesus' ministry. But secondly, this miracle is unique to every other healing ministry. Not just healing of the blind. What Jesus did in these few verses that we just looked at, it's unique to anything Jesus has ever done before or will ever do after. That what Jesus does to this man it's almost its own category. Why? Because Jesus touches the man twice to perform the miracle. You'll never see this again. You don't see it beforehand, and you won't see it after. Jesus touches the man the first time, and we're told that he looked up and saw men like trees walking. Jesus touches him a second time, and we're told that he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Now, our first question to unpack what's actually happening here, is what does it mean that the man looked up and saw men like trees walking? It's kind of a really weird description here. I think there are two theories in regards to the explanation of what's happening. Now, admittedly, the first explanation is the traditional, pervasive, uh, mainline view of this miracle. But I'm going to share with you a second theory that you've probably never heard before because I've never heard it before. And if it's wrong, well, I apologize. The first is that this was a progressive miracle. That's the, the traditional mainline view on the healing, that it was progressive. That Jesus, he touches the man the first time and his eyesight's partially restored. This is evidenced by the fact that the, men, the man looked up and he saw men like trees walking. And so the conclusion is that the man's vision was blurry. So Jesus touches him, partially restores his eyesight. The result is that he's seeing things now, but it's all blurry, it's out of focus. So Jesus touches him a second time, the miracle progresses, to the point that now his eyesight's restored and he's now seeing men clearly. Now this is how almost everyone views the miracle, as a progressive miracle. Now there's a side note that should be mentioned that I would agree. I'm of the opinion that the man's blindness was not something he was born with, but something that, that came at some point in his life, that he lost his eyesight at some point, mainly because Jesus asks him what he sees, and he provides descriptions that you wouldn't be able to provide without context. I mean, he says, I see men. How do you know what men look like if you've never seen before? Like trees, and they're walking, activity. So I'm of the opinion, and I think this is important, that the man, the man had, had eyesight at one point and had lost it at some juncture of his life. This is the only place we have this miracle, so really it's only left to conjecture. Now there's a second theory. Some say it's a progressive miracle. I'm convinced that it is a regressive miracle. That Jesus, when he first touches the man, that the man, his eyesight was fully restored. Now let me explain. The phrase, because we're told that Jesus touches the man, and we're told that he looked up and he saw men like trees walking. Now, this phrase, looked up, is the Greek verb enablo 
from which we get our English word enabled. It literally means, like we think looked up in the sense that, that he looks up. No, it, it's much more significant than that. It means that his eyesight was enabled, that he looked up, that it was enabled. Literally, it's the active recovery of sight. That's the translation of this word enablo, which is translated looked up. Now, that's significant. Because in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, I want you to turn there. I don't often do this, but I want you to flip just a few pages to your right. You'll get there quick. Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in Nazareth. He gets up to teach the people. He opens to the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus is going to quote a passage. He's going to read a passage that describes his ministry. And in this, look at verse 18, that Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Now pause. Because this phrase, recovering of sight to the blind, it's the Greek feminine noun, an A plus. It's the same word. And so Jesus says that the man looked up, an A That's recovery of sight. That's exactly what Jesus said he came to do, an A plus. Now, if this means that when Jesus first touches the man, that he could see that his sight he had a recovery of sight. He was blind, and then he could see. If that's what's happening, then what's he seeing? I believe that when Jesus touched the man's eyes, he healed, he restored, he fixed this man's eyesight to see exactly as the eye had always been designed to see. That when Jesus <clears throat> heals the man's eyesight, that he was healing it as the eye was created to see in the book of Genesis. As Adam saw, this man could see. And what does he see? He sees not just the physical world, but I'm convinced that his description is, is cluing us in that he's now also seeing a spiritual world. That he's seeing the physical and the spiritual. Because when Adam was in the garden, there's, he walked with God, he could see God, he could talk to God, he could see angels, that we're to see angels. That, that immediately the man looked up, Jesus is like, what do you see? And he says, I see men like trees walking. And I don't think that's blurry vision. I have horrible eyesight. If I were to take out my contacts right now, I've, you're all blurry. But I've never described my blurry vision as like, wow, I see men like trees walking. <laughs> like, like, that seems to me not to be an accurate equation of, of like how blurried vision produces the image of a man. I think the man's seeing angelic beings, potentially demonic beings, that he's seeing as the eye was designed to see. Now, this is significant because note, Jesus then, realizing the man was not ready for that. He touches the man a second time, regressing the effects of the first back to the man's eyesight 
as it was before he became blind. The word restored, because we're told Jesus touches him a second time, and his eyesight was restored, and he could see clearly. The word restored, it doesn't mean recovery of sight. It means, in the Greek, to return back to its former state. So let me sum it up. The first touch, the man looked up, and the ablo, full recovery of sight. The creator's first touch was so complete that it enabled the man's eyes to see all that the eye was designed to see, the physical and the spiritual. But the man wasn't ready for that. So Jesus touches the man a second time, regressing the effects of the first. He restores or he returns the man's sight to its former state or what his eyesight had been before he became blind. And, that, and that's all consistent with the language that we find here. Now, I'm, there's an implication. An implication, that, by the way, that we're going to delve into more in our B-sides this coming week. But think about it. We're blind before, before the light of revelation, before Jesus speaks into our life and Jesus gives us eyes to see, where we see the world in a totally different way and things become clear and things make sense and life has purpose, where, where the blindness, the veil of blindness brought by sin is lifted and we see the world as God intends us to see it. But how does God intend us to see it? He wants us to not just see. Spiritual eyes that can see don't just see the physical. But over and over and over and over and over again, we're exhorted in Scripture to have spiritual eyes to recognize the spiritual world and the spiritual dynamic of what's happening around us. Because so much of what you might simply chalk up to physical things happening with your kids or in your marriage or at work, you say, okay, there's logical, worldly explanations for these things. But Jesus is saying, look beyond that and see that there is a real enemy who is attacking not just have eyes to see the physical, but when Jesus heals, he wants us to have eyes to see also the spiritual. Now, because the pervasive, pervasive and traditional explanation of this miracle is that it was a progressive miracle, I do think it's important for us to just address the natural question that comes from that vantage point. Because people will say, if it took Jesus two times to heal the man, then could this miracle be evidence of Jesus' fallibility? That Jesus kind of blew it. Well, to begin with, can you say that a progressive healing isn't a miracle? I mean, really, L let me see you heal someone of blindness. I mean, before you can start saying that Jesus, like, healing the blind man, needing to touch him twice was somehow, like, a demonstration of less power than it would have taken him to touch once, like, come on. Like, a progressive healing, what happens to this, he could see. So whether it's touching him once or twice, really, the man was healed of blindness. So let's not miss, you know, the forest through the trees. But then let's also say that isn't, well, first, all healing a miracle? You know, doctors might diagnose and they might treat, but ultimately when it comes to the human body, doctors don't heal people. God does. Now, whether God wants to do it supernaturally, whether God wants to do it touching you once or touching you twice or having a doctor treat you in a round of 14, 
When it's all said and done, all healing is brought about by God. So if it's progressive, who cares? But secondly, it's important to note that Jesus had experience healing the blind. Like, can you logically reason that the initial touch was a misfire that the second touch was intending to correct when Jesus has never misfired on a healing before? He's healed multiple people that are blind and doesn't have any problems doing it once. He heals everybody by healing them once. He doesn't even have to touch them sometimes. He can just speak to them. They don't even have to be there occasionally. They can be at home. I mean, Jesus never really messes up. So can you say that this one time is an outlier that, that can be explained as evidence of Jesus's fallibility? Or can you say that it's an outlier because Jesus is using it for a greater purpose? Which leads to the third point here, because consider the context of the miracle. Jesus performed this miracle for four reasons. First, the man needed healing. It was a blind man, couldn't see, that needed to be touched by Jesus, who needed his sight restored. Imagine how his life, this is the first century, by the way, how his life had become severely hindered and inhibited because of blindness, how he was limited. So the man needed healing, but secondly, I also think that Jesus performs this miracle this way because we need encouragement. You know, one of the things that we see when we, when we read through the Gospels and we read through Jesus healing people is how immediate those healings are. person comes to Jesus with a need, Jesus speaks or he touches, and boom, everything's taken care of immediately. And then we look at our own lives and we're like, wait a second, I come to Jesus and I want healing. I want to be restored. I want to see a miracle take place. And I don't see it happen immediately. You know, for most of us, I think we can relate to how Jesus handled this man. Why? Because most of the time when Jesus works a miracle in our lives, it's not immediate, but rather it's gradual. That it's a gradual transforming. That it's a gradual renewing. That it's a gradual work and not an immediate work. And I think that this, this miracle is for our encouragement. Hey, if I'm working gradually, there's a reason and there's a purpose, but it's still a miracle and continue on and be patient and be faithful that I have a plan and a purpose. But I also think that in context that the purpose behind this miracle, and now we bring ourselves full circle, is for the disciples. You see, the disciples needed instruction. It's interesting that the man's blindness and the healing that took place, it completely revolved around what? It completely revolved around how this man saw people, how he saw mankind. He was blind, and he couldn't see men at all. And yet the end result of Jesus' gradual work is what? Is that at the end, he could see men clearly clearly. What's the disciples' problem at this juncture? They couldn't see men the way that God wanted them to see them. 
They had this prejudice and this self-righteousness and this, this bigotry towards the Gentiles that Jesus is trying to work them out of. He's trying to teach them and exhort them. He's performing a miracle in the way that they see humanity because Jesus wants the disciples to see people the way that God sees people and not the way that religion does. Because religion only judges mankind, it never liberates and saves. The law brought condemnation, but Jesus brought grace. And he's wanting the disciples to understand this, to relate to it. And so there's a miracle, and Jesus throws up his hands in frustration. Why? Because it's not happening quickly, it's gradual. They're slowly moving the direction that Jesus wants them to move. And I think that this miracle, it's to instruct them, you're blind but I'm working, and that the picture presented to the disciples who are present is that I want you to see clearly, but understand first that you're blind. Now, I think that there's a fourth reason in context. I've mentioned this, but it's not an accident that Mark is the only gospel that records this event. And we know that we are given Mark's account more than likely from Peter. And isn't it true that if you examine the life of Peter, that God's ministry, that Jesus' ministry to good old Pete, it, was, it took some time, didn't it? Like that Peter was very relatable for us because he was stubborn and hard-headed and he had the potential of great moments followed by huge valleys, right? And yet Peter, I think, encouraged by this miracle, that I was blind, and it took me some time, but Jesus didn't give up. It's a ministry that will continue its way all the way through the book of Acts. Well, we're told in verse 27 that Jesus and his disciples, they went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? So Jesus leaves the north shore of Galilee. He heads due north to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was situated in the foothills of Mount Hermon. Today, this is kind of the, the, well, loosely, the Golan Heights. Caesarea Philippi, you can visit it today, the ruins. It was situated right at the springs for one of the two sources of the Jordan River. So this is how north you are, the foothills of Mount Hermon. Now, on the journey, as they're making their way through these towns, Jesus strikes up a conversation. That's kind of the, the language used here, is that it's, a, it's an informal dialogue. It's just kind of a loose conversation. It's not them sitting around uh, with a directed, it's just a natural, it's a kind of an organic uh, sort of, of conversation circulating around the rumors that the people had concerning who that Jesus was. Jesus asked them, so guys, you, you kind of have a pulse on the multitude. Who are people saying that I am? Now, why would Jesus ask this question when Jesus clearly knew what people were saying? I mean, does Jesus need the disciples to break the news? No. Does Jesus ask this question as some kind of twisted self-aggrandizement or self-gratification? You know, if, if I were to come up to you and say, hey, how was the Bible study? Really, I'm not wanting you to say, it stunk. You should find another career. You're lame. That's not why I'm coming to you. Like, there's a part of me that's kind of wanting you to say, man, it was great. The Lord really spoke. Now, now sometimes I say that because of 
Like, like I just need encouragement. Other times, it's kind of like, I've had a really bad week, and I could really use a pick-me-up. Is Jesus asking, hey, man, I'm so frustrated with what's going on right now. I could really just use a pep talk. So who are men saying that I am? Like, break the news to me. No, the answer, why is Jesus asking this question? He's asking this question in context of the story before and the context of everything else going on. This is an opportunity to build off the previous lesson he's been teaching the disciples. So they answered. Some say John the Baptist, Elijah, others one of the prophets. Who do men think that Jesus was? What was the pervasive wisdom? John the Baptist resurrected, that's the first theory. Some people were saying that it was Elijah. They say Elijah because Elijah, according to uh, the prophet Micah, was to be a forerunner of the Messiah, and so that was a theory. Or one of the prophets. Matthew, his account of this story in chapter 16, includes Jeremiah as a specific prophet. People might have thought that Jesus was. But then look in verse 29. Jesus says to them, He doesn't even reply to their answer. But he says to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, I want to make an observation. There are many thoughts and theories, even today, as to who Jesus is. Prophet, great teacher, a guru, lots of theories, Lots of ideas, lots of concepts. There's lots of things out there. So if someone says, who's Jesus that you can share? These are all the theories. But when it's all said and done, you know the only opinion of who Jesus is that matters to Jesus? It's not what other people say. It's what you think. I mean, he does it. He says, well, who do men say that I am? So they reply. But then Jesus immediately does what? He personalizes it. He says, forget what they say. Let me ask, well, what do you say? You see, the only opinion of Jesus that has any relevance to your life is yours. It's not who do men say that I am that Jesus is interested in. Jesus is asking you, who am I to you? Who do you say that I am? And why does your answer to this question matter? Your eternal destiny hinges on that answer. It hinges on that opinion. Now, there's lots that we could unpack there. And we're going to leave that to a B-side. But here's the point that I want to I make sure is hammered down this morning. If you don't have an answer to that question, find one. If you can't answer that, that's okay but you'll never be able to stand before God on judgment day and plead ignorant. Or to say, well, well, my pastor said this about you, or my husband said that, or my parents believe this, or culture. No, Jesus will look at you, and it'll be, the only thing that will matter will be your opinion. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant enter into your rest, or he'll say, depart. Why? Because I never knew you. I didn't have a relationship with you. Your answer to that question, it's the most important answer you'll ever have to any question ever posed.
Well, Peter, good old Peter, the Pope, jumps to the foreground, and he answered, and he said, you are the Christ. Now, the word Christ, it's not Jesus' last name. I know that some people kind of think that, Jesus Christ, that that was kind of Jesus' name tag. It's not. The, the word Christ, Christos in the Greek, is the translation of the Hebrew word that we have for Messiah. The word literally means the anointed. That's what the word Christ means. It's Jesus the anointed, and it speaks of kingship. Jesus Christ is not Jesus' first name, Christ's last name, or surname. It's literally, if you were to say Jesus Christ, it's Jesus the Christ, or Jesus the King. It's a title, which makes kind of our pop culture ironic, because you will hear people, for a lot of other reasons than reverence, declare in a moment of anger or frustration, Jesus Christ. Wait a second. You're saying Jesus the King. That doesn't make any sense. Now, why do people take the Lord's name in vain? Well, they take the Lord's name in vain because it's only the Lord's name that there's power behind. There was power behind the name of God. That's why that's why you don't find anyone that stubs their toe and their immediate response is son of a Buddha. Like no one uses like Mahatma Gandhi. Like no one throws out other names of other leaders and other religions like, like because why? There's no power behind the name. Muhammad. No one says that. They only take the Lord's name in vain. They only say Jesus Christ or Jesus or GD. Why? Because there's power in that name. Peter's response. You are the Christ, the anointed, the Messiah. Now, we have to ask, why is this exchange significant at this juncture? Well, first, Jesus will leave Caesarea Philippi, and he's going to make a directed journey to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world, which makes this exchange important because they're going to, at some points here in the future, begin to doubt this and question this and struggle with this. But there's a second reason, a more, I think, pertinent reason and that's that Jesus is making a serious point to the disciples that connects to the healing of the blind man and everything else going on. Jesus has been challenging their prejudicial view towards the lost. And the healing of the woman's demon-possessed daughter and the healing of the blind man at the end of chapter 7, Jesus is making it clear to the disciples, what? You might hate the Gentiles, but I love them. You might judge them, I came to save them. He's making it clear. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus communicates he, to the disciples that you're to love them as well in the feeding of the 4,000, especially as it is in context to the feeding of the 5,000. I love the Gentiles, and guess what, folks? You should love them too. I love the lost. I don't judge them. I save them, and you should not judge them. You should minister to them. That's the point Jesus has been making. The disciples miss the point, don't they? So what does Jesus do? 
He illustrates to them what he's trying to accomplish in the healing of the blind man. Trying to change. He wants them to see men clearly. And then in this exchange, Jesus is providing the remedy. You can't see men clearly until you first see Jesus clearly. That's what's going on here. The key to how we view people, it all begins with first how we view Christ, how we view Jesus. When our view of Jesus comes into focus, our view of one another is transformed. The remedy to self-righteousness, to prejudice, to bigotry, to racism, to judgmentality, I guess, if that's a word, to strife, to inequality, the key to the the problems that ail humanity and all of our strife with one another, the remedy is not religion. It's Jesus. And when we see Jesus for who he is, well, it changes the way that we view everyone else. You see, there's, there's only equal footing at the cross. There's no room for a hierarchy There's the lost, and there's the Savior. There's the the transgressed, and there's the remedy. And when we see Jesus, and we realize that we're saved by that work on the cross, by that man, and we look at one another, how can we judge each other? How can we look down on one another? We should love one another because of what Jesus has done for us. We're told in Scripture that, that we should love others because He first loved us, that his love was demonstrated to us. So how in the world, if his love being demonstrated to us and our sin and our trespasses, can we not love each other? Their problem was that they couldn't see men clearly. Jesus is making that that point. And then immediately he's saying, the key, am I Lord? Am I king? Because if I am, then that should change the way you see people. Well, Jesus, we're told, strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. He strictly warned. He literally rebuked or he censored them. It's the same word we find in Mark chapter 4 when Jesus arose and he rebuked the wind. Same word. He rebuked the wind. Shut up. He censored them. And understand that Jesus censored them not because they were wrong in their conclusion that he was indeed the Messiah. No, Jesus censors them because their idea of the Messiah was incomplete. It was skewed. And it's at this point in his ministry that Jesus, moving forward, between now and the cross, he's going to begin to correct their misconceptions of who the Messiah is, who he was, and what it really meant to follow the Messiah. Okay, now that, you've, that you believe I am the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, because I am the Messiah. Okay, you should not tell anyone because your thoughts of what that means is wrong. And you're following the Messiah, and what, what your thoughts are about that is also wrong. So at this point, with that in context, we're now going to begin to correct these misconceptions and exhort you and teach you in regards to what it really means to follow me. And this is a a teaching lesson that will continue through the rest of our travels through the Gospel of Mark. And it's at this place that we'll stop this morning.
and pick it up next week. So, Father, we thank you for your word and what your word says to us.